Well, let me invite you to uh, open your Bibles to the Old Testament, the book of Zechariah. It's on page 1008, and our text is going to spill over to 1009 in your pew Bibles. But if you're using your own Bible and you have a little trouble finding Zechariah, it would be better for you to start at Matthew, the first gospel, and, and move backwards. Matthew, Malachi, Zechariah. And it's here within chapter 1... Uh, that we're going to read this evening. I'm going to read chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through verse 17. Zechariah chapter 1, verse 1, through verse 17. We're going to just kind of remind ourselves where we started off last week as Pastor Don read the call to return to the Lord and preached from it, those first six verses And then the majority of our time will be in this first vision, a vision of a horseman in verses 7 through 17. And so people of God, hear the word of God as it's been written for you. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Barakah, son of Edo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Barakah, son of Edo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Then I said, What are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these seventy years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, Cry out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts. My cities shall again overflow with prosperity. And the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. This is the word of God for the people of God. 
Thanks be to God for it. Well, as Pastor Don last week began to introduce this book of prophecies here in the Old Testament of Zechariah, he was telling you a little bit about, uh, and the, the author gives us some historical facts so that we will helpfully know where exactly we are within the Old Testament timeline, within the kingdom of Jerusalem, in even the exile and the reign of King Darius, as he has now taken over for what was before King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, who had conquered Judah, and of course taken the the Jews captive, deporting them into exile in Babylon. The people of God had been displaced. We preached not that long ago through the book of Daniel, and so these names should sound familiar to you, because first, of course, it was King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and then it was Cyrus who conquered Babylon in 539 B.C. He was the king of Medes. He came to power, and he began to allow the the Jewish people to enter back into their homelands. And so by the time that Darius takes over the throne, King Darius takes over the throne, something like 50,000 Jews had finally returned to Jerusalem. And we know what happens when this roughly 50,000 members of the Jews return to Jerusalem because we're told in the book of Ezra that they return and they find their city in utter ruin. You remember how Ezra, if you're a good Bible reader, tells us how the exiles returned to their city and they found it in terrible disrepair. The walls have been torn down. The gates have been burned with fire. The, the magnificent temple that Solomon built had been utterly destroyed. The land had been devastated. And even the pagan neighbors that still surrounded the city were attempting to throw every conceivable obstacle or roadblock in the way of the people of God to restore the grand city of Jerusalem. And so the people of God, as they return in Ezra, they feel the burden of the work in which they have to accomplish. But even from the outside, they feel the pressures of this this wild, I guess we might say, this wild political situation that's going on. Because Darius, the new emperor, is seeking to consolidate the power there within the empire. And, And so the people of God don't know. They don't know if they're going to be called back to the capital. They do not know how the fortunes of their city will be restored. They do not know if they will be persecuted and murdered or even if the work that they accomplish will be just torn down again at the hands of the pagans. And yet under the ministry of Ezra the scribe, the building of the city begins and the temple foundations are laid. And it's there, 17 years later, that the prophet Zechariah begins to speak on behalf of the Lord. We have to remember something of a prophet, right? They are speaking with authority. They are speaking inspired words, just as the gospel writers write the gospels, just as Paul, under the Holy Spirit inspiration, writes his letters. So the prophets of the Old Testament, here in Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah speaks these 
Holy Spirit-inspired and authoritative words. And so it's been 17 years since the foundation of the temple was laid. The work of the temple remains incomplete, unfinished. The restoration effort of the city is completely halted. And Zechariah shows up to the scene to begin to speak on behalf of the Lord. Now I want you to put yourself with your sanctified imaginations. Put yourself in the shoes of the Jewish people. They've had this glorious promise. Even before they faced the exile, even when they were being called to repentance from prophets like Isaiah, they have been told, you're not going to return to the Lord. Therefore, what the Lord is going to do is He's going to ban you from the city. He's going to drive you out from His presence. You will be persecuted. You will be trod. You will suffer at the hands of your enemies. But one day, the fortunes will return to Jerusalem. And so they're home. But what are they home to? Are the fortunes in which God has promised, are they showing themselves to be fruitful or even be faithful? And so they are weary. They're uncertain. They're bewildered, we might say. They might be lacking faith. They're surely afraid from all the pagan enemies that surround them. There's political and social unrest. There's dramatic changes within the government. They're surrounded by neighbors hostile to their beliefs, their convictions on every side. The task must feel insurmountable. The the call of the Christian here in the Old Testament, these God-fearers, these God-believers, it must seem hopeless. And, and if we're honest with ourselves, there's, there's many parallels, I think, between what the people of God felt here in Zechariah chapter 1 and what we feel today. Something should sound fairly familiar to you because we live, don't we, in a time of political chaos. We live in a culture that is rapidly changing. We live within a social sphere, you might say, that that is increasingly hostile to our biblical convictions. And, And the Lord has said that He will preserve His church, and yet there are states, even in our own country, persecuting the church and persecuting Christians for their biblical and scriptural beliefs. And so the pressure is within our own cities. The pressure is within our own nation. And the pressures are throughout the whole world. There are convictions being questioned on every side and and hostility rising up in, in every corner. And yet we're called to a very specific Christian task. We're called to labor on, to travel well. We're called to build up the kingdom with the preaching of the gospel. And and yet, this task sometimes seems very insurmountable, doesn't it? And so, when we we come to the book of Zechariah, we, we long for a message of hope, of comfort. If we put ourselves into the shoes of the Jewish people, we're longing for the Lord to speak through His prophet. You can imagine, right? The prophet stands up in the city square and he begins to speak and you're waiting for him to say, the Lord is here. The Lord is faithful. The Lord is going to keep His promises. 
The Lord is going to restore Jerusalem. The Lord is going to work. But that's not where Zechariah starts, is it? As Pastor Don even preached last week, he starts with a call to repentance. How shocking. Have you ever thought about that? How shocking this must be. We're weary. We're heavy laden. We're sore. We're broken by the work that has been done. We're longing to hear something restorative. And yet the prophet Zechariah says there is no restoration. There is no reformation. There is no renewal. There is no presence of the Lord until you search your own hearts and find yourself on your knees in repentance before a holy God. You see, as he draws you into this call of repentance in the verse, first verses 1-6, through six, he, he tells us of this returning to the Lord with a promise, yes. With a promise that if you'll return to me, I will return to you. And, and yet, as he calls us to repentance, as he calls us to turn from our wicked ways, we have to know what the prophet Zechariah is calling them from. He actually tells us within the text. And as he, as he looks amongst the nations in, in verse 15, we'll get to this verse more in detail here in a few minutes, but look at what he's exceedingly angry with. And I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. There's a comparison here. As, as the prophet Zechariah is calling us to repentance in verses 1 through 6, he's telling us to remember the sins of our fathers, and they were idle. They were at ease. Remember the context, the historical context, the story of Zechariah as he's coming onto the scene matters. They have laid the foundations, and now they have done absolutely nothing for 17 years. They've laid the foundations in obedience to God despite the suffering, despite the questions, despite the uncertainty, despite the, the battles of faithlessness. They have pressed on in laying the foundations. And then they said, you know what? I just want to be normal for a little bit. That's what one commentator says. It's the sin of normalcy. And I think that's right because what they feel, this pressure, this tiredness, this soreness from within is, you know what, I just want to relax for a little bit. The, the cultural pressures that surround them, all of these pagans that are hostile to them, they say, well, surely they won't be hostile, or at least as hostile if we bend just a little bit to their idols. If we bend just a little bit to their idolatries. And so you see what's happening, right? The same assimilation that Babylon wanted to put these people through to become Babylonians, they have been rescued from, and now all of a sudden they're assimilating themselves into the wicked culture that surrounds them so that the hostilities might be diminished just a tad. And maybe you've felt something like that. You've heard the word of the Lord calling you to repentance. You know that this is a mistake that you must avoid. He's saying, don't be like your fathers who did these very things. No, you return to me and I'll return to you. But it's easy, isn't it? It's easy to let the culture around us or the, 
the tiredness of laboring on for Christ to, to cause us to, to stray away, to backslide, to be at ease, to have idle hands. And Zechariah is saying, listen, your fathers, they come and go. The prophets, they come and go. But the promises of our Lord remain. If you will be idle-handed, I don't even know if that's correct in English, but if you will be idle-handed, the promises of the Lord are you will be judged as your fathers were judged. But if you'll turn away from the sins of your father and you will return to the Lord, I will return to you. And thank God, here at the last little bit of verse 6, we see a real repentance spreading over the people. As the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has He dealt with us. He's, what, what they're saying is it's mind-blowing because this is a repentant heart. What the Lord has done to our fathers was right and was just. The punishment, the correction... The rod was good for us. Now it's time for us to return to the Lord. For surely He will return to us. And it's in this repentant state of the Jews that Zechariah sees this first vision. And this vision really has three parts. I think that there is the first part of the promise of God's presence. Keeping His promise. If you return to me, I'll return to you. He's going to show us how He returns to us. And then we're going to see this longing heart. We're going to see this longing heart for a restored Zion. And then we're actually going to see into the very future, the very near future, where the prosperity of Zion, the new Zion, the grander Zion, is actually uh, bestowed upon the people of God. And so first, let's see uh, the Lord's presence. Here it is in, in verses 7 through 11, this, this horseman uh, that, that rides in on this, this red horse. Now, you, you're not to imagine this bright kind of crimson red supernatural horse. This is not a, a, a horse that's on fire or anything of the sort. It's a chestnut colored horse. It's this reddish brown horse. If you've ever been around horses, Beth's dad trains quarter horses. There are two that have this reddish tint. There are three that has this very brown color. And then what he says here is there's a white horse. And so that's what we're to see. These very natural looking horses. And this chestnut horse, this man rides upon this chestnut, this red horse, and he stands among the myrtle tree. And so this is a mysterious figure, isn't it? This is a mysterious figure, so much so, and this should comfort us, that when we read visions in the Old Testament, especially here in Zechariah, the first thing that we do is, what in the world's going on? And that's Zechariah's response as well. Tell me what all of this means. I see this mysterious, supernatural man riding in on this red horse. I see the myrtle trees of the glen. I see this red soil and white horses with these angelic beings riding upon them, coming in behind him. What does all of this mean? And here it is that, that in verse 9, the angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. 
And so immediately, right, you're expecting this angel to begin talking to Zechariah. But who talks? It's actually the one that they call the angel of the Lord. He interrupts the other angel, it almost seems. In fact, as you read through the the vision, you cannot take your eyes away from what is called here the angel of the Lord, but just for a few moments. Because here it is that this mysterious man standing among the myrtle trees is the centerpiece of the vision. He is the bouquet of the vision. He is where your eyes should be drawn, and it's it's Him who speaks. And again, if you're a good Old Testament Bible reader, you know there's there's something grand about this terminology, the angel of the Lord. You you can think about how the angel of the Lord appears in Genesis 16 to Hagar. And, And this angel of the Lord says to Hagar, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered. And Hagar responds in verse 13 of Genesis 16 by calling out this angel of the Lord. She says, you are the God of seeing. In Exodus 3, the burning bush narrative, we see the angel of the Lord appearing in this burning bush that's on fire but not being consumed. And Moses' response tells us who this is even before it's revealed to us who this is. He begins to take off his shoes and this is holy ground. Why? Because this is Yahweh speaking. We think about just even within the past 50 years within our narrative, how how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have been thrown into the fiery furnace and King Nebuchadnezzar looks in and he goes, wasn't there only three men that we threw in the fire? And they said, yes, sir, only three men. Well, there's a fourth man walking around and he is an angel of the Lord. He appears as the Son of Man. And then in, further on in the book of Daniel, We know that Daniel, the servant of the Lord, is thrown into the lion's den for his obedience and prayer. And as King Darius, you remember, as King Darius comes to the lion's den the next morning and he finds Daniel alive and well, he asks Daniel how he survived the hungry lions and he says, oh, an angel of the Lord shut their mouths. And we know. And we know through the Old Testament context that this angel of the Lord is actually a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. This is the Lord Himself appearing here in the midst of the myrtle trees in the glen. And there should be a a picture in your mind, even even in the way that this vision is written, that it's, it's drawing you back to the Garden of Eden. It's drawing you back to how the Lord Himself dwelt and communed and walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. And and you remember the the prophecy in Isaiah 55, yes, you will be thrown into exile. Yes, you will suffer. Yes, you will be persecuted. Yes, you will be away from my presence. But don't you forget, the thorn bush will not always remain a thorn bush, but one day it will be a myrtle tree. See, here it is that that the Lord is revealing. And think about the comfort that wells up within the hearts of the believers here. We are weary, we are broken, we are sore. We are afflicted in every way. 
And yet the Lord says, you know what? I'm here. As you have turned from your idle hands, as you have turned from the sins of your fathers, I have called you to return with the promise that I will return to you. And the man in the myrtle tree says, here I am. It's the presence of the Lord, isn't it? He comes and he stands in the myrtle grove and he walks amongst his people yet again. And you think about it. This is the grand story of redemption. That in, yes, the Eden, the, the, the introduction of sin into the world now, now brings separation between God and man, but yet in His grace and in His mercy, He condescends to His people again, not in the Garden of Eden in the cool of the day, but in the temple there in the midst of Jerusalem. That is where I dwell. And because of sin and wickedness, the temple has been destroyed and yet God appears again in His grace and His mercy and He says, I will never leave you nor will I forsake you. There is nothing that can separate you from my love nor heights, death, lengths, breadth. No principalities or authorities on this world could ever stop me from loving my people. And, and that's what is so comforting here at the very end of this vision. It says, And the Lord again will comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. It is this renewal, if you, if you like. It's this renewal of, of God's covenant love with His people. Despite your sinfulness, I will love you anyway. Despite your waywardness, I will reveal myself to you again. And that is a message of comfort for the people of God. And it's that same comfort that John sees in Revelation chapter 1. It's very fitting, I think, to, to flip over there to Romans chapter, or Revelation chapter 1 because it's there that John sees a similar vision. It's the vision of Jesus in the midst of the lampstands. For the sake of time, I'll start reading in verse 12. But you remember that John, your partner in the tribulation, the citizen of the kingdom of heaven, patiently enduring in Christ Jesus on the Lord's day. So on a Sunday, as I sat on the island of Patmos, verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed in a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like the burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. You see, the same message, the comforting message that appears here before Zechariah, the presence of the Lord with promise of life, promise of restoration, promise of reformation, 
is the same vision in which John sees as the heavens are opened up to him. And so the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ in the historical context will mean, yes, the temple will be rebuilt. The people of God will get back to work. They'll labor well as they've repented and they have turned from their sin and they now pursue the very specific calling of the Lord. But what we know is the temple will be destroyed yet again. But the presence of the Lord does not find its climax, does not find its culmination in a built temple here on earth. It finds its climax in the Word that became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. And so that is what we see here. The love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. Nothing can separate us. He will never leave us nor forsake us. And as we return to Him in repentance, He will return to us. It's a picture of the Lord's presence, this vision. But it's also this, this longing for peace. Because you see these angelic armies coming and they're reporting, not to Zechariah, they're reporting to Christ. The parallels here draw your attention back to the commander of the Lord's army in Joshua chapter 5. The commander of the Lord's army now stands before Zechariah. The angelic hosts, the angelic armies begin to report to him. And look what they report. We have patrolled the earth at the end of verse 11. And behold, all the earth remains at rest. Now this is shocking. This is very shocking for the people of God. This is shocking for the prophet Zechariah. Yes, okay, Darius does have peace in the empire. I mean, you think about the, the shock. If you, if you cut on a news station uh, early in the morning and they said, all troops are home. There is peace all over the world. What are you going to do? Well, there might not be a battle going on right now. That might be true, but there is a war raging within this world. It's a spiritual war. And, and that's what the angel of the Lord knows. We're supposed to, we're supposed to kind of question this, this report from the angels. Now, commentators don't exactly know how to handle this. I think that probably what's best understood is that the angels actually do see the world at rest. They're heavenly beings, and so they understand all things well through the crystal sea of heaven. And so they do believe it's at rest, but in our human minds, in our human understanding, they might say it's at rest, but it doesn't feel at rest. And so what begins to happen as there's a cry, a prayer of intercession? The angel of the Lord said, verse 12, How long, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these 70 years. Now these 70 years is that period of exile. And so what's happening here? Jesus Christ Himself prays to the Heavenly Father. The angels know. The angels know the world is at rest because you sovereignly hold it together. But your people long for the day that they realize the world is at rest because you sovereignly hold it together. That is what's happening here. It's the intercession of Jesus Christ Himself before the throne of the Father. And so we think about this, right? Jesus will never leave us nor forsake us because we are His people, His chosen people. And yet, at the very same time, He'll never stop interceding for you. He'll never leave you nor forsake you, nor will He ever stop interceding for you. 
There's a, a newer hymn before the throne of God above, and it says, Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hand. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. And so he prays in intercession for his people. And here's what's great about the remainder of this vision, very quickly. It turns out that the Father, the Father cannot deny the prayers of the Son. There is the Trinity at work for us. Same in substance, equal in power and glory. The Father's will is the Son's will. The Father and the Son's will is the Holy Spirit's will. And so as the Son prays according to the will of the Father, the Father cannot deny the prayers of the Son. Sinclair Ferguson says, Jesus' prayers are the mirror of God's decrees. Jesus' prayers are the mirror of God's decrees. And so here, in verses 13 through 17, we see this promise of Zion's prosperity. And it's climaxed for us. It's highlighted for us there in verse 16. Therefore, Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. I'm going to establish my kingdom. The sins of the fathers, the sins of the fathers will not stop me. The nations around you will not stop me. They might seem to win. They might seem to put my plan in utter disaster, but I will build my kingdom. It's the same exact words that Jesus says. I will build my church in the very presence of the gates of hell, and nothing that the gates of hell can stop it. I will choose Jerusalem. I will comfort Zion, and I will do it not just here within our historical context of Zechariah, but I will do it forever. There's the gracious and comforting words of this, of this vision. Yes, the temple will be built and work on Jerusalem will restore, re, resume. And, and yes, for a season, prosperity will return to the land. But there is something much more grand that is happening within this vision. We are, we are drawing our eyes to a new Zion, a heavenly home. And on to, in closing, read this little paragraph by... A commentator. He says, in verses 13 through 17, what are we being told? Aren't we being told that the meek shall inherit the earth? Aren't we being told that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will one day be revealed to us? Aren't we being told that the church militant will become the church triumphant? Aren't we being reminded that the way things are now are not the way things will always be? that our suffering will one day give way to celebration and the new Jerusalem will come down out of heaven from God, aren't we being told that the dwelling of God will be perfectly and completely with men and He will wipe away every tear from our eyes? Aren't we being told about a great day that will be? And surely that is a day that's going to come soon. That's the vision, isn't it? 
It's the vision that appears here in Zechariah chapter 1. It's the vision that appears multiple times through the book of Revelation. That Jesus, we might say, is already on His way for His people. And one day soon, change is going to come. And so the call here, the call here is press on, labor on, keep going for the day of Zion's prosperity is a day nearer now than when you first believed. Galatians 6, 9, Do not grow weary in doing good, for in due season you will reap if you do not give up. That's the call of the Christian life. Keep doing good, for in due season you will reap if you do not give up. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that we would receive this message of comfort and that we would uh, be spurred on to continue laboring well, pressing on faithfully, that we would keep going, that we would not grow weary in doing good, but that we would, that we would longingly wait for heaven to come. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.